0: Making it in business isn't about spreadsheets, this or that, it's about guts, tenacity, and above all, street smarts. Join Sarah Shaw as she talks with successful entrepreneurs about all the hard-won lessons they've learned on the mean streets of the business world. If you've ever felt stuck, stifled, or even just scared to get out there and make your mark, you'll learn how even the most successful entrepreneurs overcame failure and found the power to move forward. So forget about learning about business in school, because all you need to make it big is a street-smart MBA. And here's
1: your host, Sarah Shaw. Hey there, Sarah Shaw here from Get a Street Smart MBA, and I'm looking forward to speaking to Tracy Hazard today, who's an Inc. magazine columnist and the co-host of the top-ranked podcast, Product Launch Hazards. And another one called WTFFF, which is all about 3D printing and prototyping. So you guys can find some really interesting stuff there. We'll have all those links in the show notes. Tracy and her husband, Tom, have also co-designed and developed over 250 consumer products, generating $2 billion in revenue for their clients. They've even ghost-designed products for tons of major e-commerce and big-box retailers, including brands like Martha Stewart Living and Herman Miller. And they develop products all around the world, travel to Asia frequently to inspect and certify the work work with their clients, factory suppliers, and all that stuff, take care of it for you. And collectively, they hold over 37 utility and design patents with an unprecedented 86% commercialization rate, which is un-freaking-believable. So welcome, (laughs) Tracy. I'm really excited to talk to you.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. I'm excited to be here with you. Yeah, well,
1: so... Okay, Miss 86%. I want to talk about the low-cost ways to test market new products because you've so many, right?
0: Well, and that number wouldn't be like that if we didn't test market first. So we don't go and patent stuff unless we're sure it's going to be worth commercializing, right? So that's why like, everyone always asks, like, how do you have that statistic? That's amazing. I was like, well, we don't just patent stuff because we came up with an idea. We know it's going to go to market, and then we patent it. And so mm. that's the big difference there. And so, and, and we really do it because I believe in market-proof first, right. and where we're really understanding whether or not, not whether or not we have a great idea, a great product, and it's the you know, best thing, and everybody loves it. I don't really care if my family loves it. <laughs> my mm-hmm.
1: friends love it. I want to know
0: <laughs> that someone will pay for it, because at exactly. the end of the day, that's the metric everyone else cares about.
1: Right. Well, so can we just touch on one thing you just mentioned? Because so many people, I want to talk about the patent process for a sec yeah. and, and your, your thoughts on it, not the actual process. We'll leave that for another time. But, <laughs> but that's like, uh, exactly. Um, boring. Um, so what, what, one thing that was really interesting that you said was that you test market before you patent. And I think this is such an important thing to touch on because – so many people just get this idea and then freak out and patent it without even knowing, right. Whether anybody other than them and their mom like it. So, you know, and they spend, you can spend a lot of money, right. It could be, you know, eight or 10,000 for a design patent, 20 or 30,000, who knows for a utility patent. You know, if you have both, it could be, you know, it's like a down payment on a house. Um, And so, you know, what, uh, let's talk about the kinds of things – I mean, I'm really glad you brought that up just because so many people, they they also hang so much on the fact that they have a patent, right? And and so, you know, and obviously doing all this preliminary research on your end, I imagine would help you strengthen the, the uh, value of the patent, right? Because so many people patent stuff and then – you know, maybe they miss something or don't mention a way it could be used for a design patent, for example, or something. And then it gets um, slightly modified by somebody else. That's happened to me. But yes. um, and, uh, yes, I and like, there's, you're, there's you're no the other nose. way if anyone could ever do it. I mean, theirs wasn't as cool as ours, but – You know, But they did patent over our patent and cited our patent as one of the uh, specimens.
0: Which they're they're allowed to do, yeah. So actually, we do something, just to kind of mention this, Sarah, because we do something really unique. So um, we get asked to break people's patents, which I refuse to do because I respect the inventor. Um, Mm. But that doesn't mean that I won't break your patent for you. So in other words, Tom and I will sit down and take a look at your patent and say, Wow, How would someone get around this, and how would yeah. someone do that? And we create what we call a patent si- a, a patent silos. So we like surround it with a fortress. and um, And that way you end up with um, multiple patents, actually, rather than just one, which ups your which ups your asset value when you try to sell your company or your brand. Right. So now you have yeah. all the different ways to possibly do it. But we keep right. the patent costs low on that because if you're going to go for an acquisition or something, that's the time to do this. Or if you're going to go into and it's already going in on the shelf or all of that is happening, that's the time to do it. So you already have revenue coming in. We don't do that first. And and so you've just at this point filed provisional. So you have your main patent. Hopefully it's getting issued. And then you have a bunch of provisionals that surround it. And it really creates this higher valuation of you and your brand and it protects you from just what happened to you. So that's one right. thing I just want to mention that. On the side. Yeah. Because I think it's really important to be looking at is like our ultimate goal in everything that we do with patenting is to make sure that you have an asset at the end of the day. And if it's not a product that's selling, it's not an asset. A patent's not an asset. Right. It's just a piece of paper. Right. And um, and to be honest with you, most lawyers and, and people look at it and they'll downgrade the value of your patent when it's not issued yet or when it's not selling enough yet. And so mm-hmm. that, you know, it doesn't mean anything in the scope of a sale of a business. I've sold more patents in the provisional stage um and, and licensed products in the provisional stage than I have at the advanced stage of it being already issued.
1: Good point. And also there's such a huge there's such a huge amount of patents that get filed that never go to market. <laughs> right. Right. So there's like, less it, than
0: two percent. Yeah. The rate is less than two percent of patents across the board in the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, make, any, make their inventors any money. Yeah. So like, I mean, we're talking about when you think about the average of that, because think about how many patents Apple filed, and almost all of those are commercialized, right? And they make, trillion, right. uh, make a trillion dollars, right? So it should balance out, and you, you would think it would be a higher percentage, but it's not. That's how many patents get filed that do nothing, and right. it's huge. So that's a huge waste of money, as you mentioned it, like 20,000, 30,000, especially if you go for international PCT patents. And so this is what we like to do, this is why we market test and we find unique ways to do it and sometimes we do have to file provisional but when you don't consider because you can abandon provisionals very quickly so you have 1 year to file your full patent and so right. you can abandon a provisional and you've only spent you know if you're a small business i think it's like 150 bucks to file it right
1: so it's almost, you, it's almost free <laughs> it's almost free yeah and so yeah. you know so
0: you know that is is just uh, so much more worth it than a non disclosure that's worse. and yeah. We don't do NBAs at all. We find them to be controversial and, and difficult, and they create this adversarial relationship with whoever you mm-hmm. might want to sell a cheap license to or whatever. So we'd rather have the provisional and, and hide behind that as like, well, you know, we're covered because we've already filed a patent. And right. while some people may ignore that, I have found it so rare because they don't care about your product yet because they don't know if it's going to sell.
1: Right. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear you say that about the NDA because I even have clients email me sometimes and say, well, you have to sign an NDA to work with yes. me. And I'm like, uh, if I ever opened my mouth and talked about somebody's product, I'd be out of business like yesterday. Uh, right. you know, and I right. always say to people, you know, you're alienating people by by doing that and that you'd be better off having the provisional patent if you don't have a patent.
0: Right, and then you can just sort of yeah. freely talk and be confident yep. about it, which which is better because at the yes. end of the day if you're confident about your product, it shows that you really are sure that it's going to sell and so that exactly. at the end of the day is what people care about The other right. thing that I do is you know I do have a uh, like confidentiality like so when someone makes an appointment with me I hold I, I, I put a confidentiality right in that appointment because I want them to feel comfortable talking yes. to me because I have had the problem where someone was so secretive about the project that they signed paid me and then I find out the about the project. And I was like, yeah. um, that's not what you kind of indicated when we had a discussion about this and I'm not so sure I'm the right person for you. So right. I, I opened that up. But again, it's not because I, I, I can't talk about my client's work when it's under, when it's under project, I would never. And when right. people approach me, more often than not, I'm gonna be like, no one's ever gonna buy that or, or <laughs> that's a great idea, you should do it, let's do a project, right? So why yeah. would I violate that? But exactly. non-disclosures, I mean, I've had one violated. Uh, it, I went into a patent and trademark lawsuit, but it started from a non-disclosure violation with Palm Computing and IDEO, the largest industrial design firm in the world. So, you know, it's not worth the paper it's printed on because you can't, right. you can't enforce that.
1: Exactly. And, you uh, can't afford, it's almost impossible, I mean, to afford to in, enforce your own patents. I mean, right. it can be a $10 million lawsuit.
0: Right. And I got lucky. I mean, so we did end up in a lawsuit with them, but I got lucky that they ha- they wanted to go public. And so they wanted this settled because we got some major press at that time. And this is before social media. Essentially, we went viral in the community, um, in the handheld, handheld computer community. We went viral there. And that's what saved us. That's what got us settled and got us out of it. Uh. And, you know, and and moved on because we couldn't we couldn't um, follow through. We filed the lawsuit, right. but that's all the money I had. Yeah. So, you know, that was it. it was enough to do a filing. Like, that was it. Um, and yeah. we got picked up by the San Jose Mercury News and things like that. And because of that, it put pressure on their their investors, were looking at them going, uh uh-uh, you want to go public? This is going to be a problem. And exactly. so it settled it. And that's how we got out of it. But that's luck.
1: That is rare. Yes, totally. <laughs> oh, my God. You're so lucky. So, well, so let's yeah. talk about low-cost ways that people can test market new products before, before right. they file a patent. Or yeah. maybe it's not even patentable. You know, not everything is. So, right. um, and so what are some of your yeah. favorite ways?
0: So, you know, this is the thing I really want to get at whether or not there's a market. The market can be reached easily for your particular mm-hmm. category of products. So that's the first thing we want to test. So, a lot, I mean, thinking about all these companies that start apps and go out there and just create a membership community. There is a lot of smart to that. You know, there's a lot of uh, great brand building things that you can do just by getting, you know, let's say our, our um our product is focused on little dogs right small dogs mm-hmm. there's a huge community on Facebook of people who are big fans of their small dogs, whatever the breeds might be. go in and talk with them, go and connect with them like there 's lots of ways for you to have sort of a connection to the actual community and then find a product that you can sell that is similar but not it doesn't it doesn 't have that great feature that you want to add to it. So maybe if it's a special, you know, quick release leash, find another one that exists out there and start selling it to the community. Put it on Amazon, put it on eBay, start your own Shopify shop, but start selling so that you're gathering the community who's already interested in your product type. Now Mm -hmm. you have the right people to talk to. So that's the first step that I like to do. And the other thing that's really great about it is, yeah, so you're selling something that exists. And uh, there's a lot of purists out there who's like, no, I just want my brand to be my own original thing. Mm -hmm. That's great, but it's going to be so much more costly to access that market. So let's find out how easy it is to access them, how easy it is to gather them, and let's use the revenue from private label selling this leash, as I was using in the example, let's use the revenue from it to help fund our, our marketing and product development for our original
1: product. Right. Now we have awesome.
0: self-funding, right? That's yes. so much better.
1: <laughs> the Way better.
0: Yeah. Let's not take yeah. a loan. So, right. so we like to do things like that. So, I use the example a lot of a juicer blender. So, if you were if you were going to make a juicer blender that was really unique and, and but together, right? And why not sell a juicer and sell a blender? So now you have both people, and now you can start finding out do these people want the new idea that you have? Now you have an ability to to send them images, to have surveys with them, to talk to them, and find out. Are you on the right track? Are they getting your invention? Because that's a part of what mm-hmm. I see a lot happens is you think it's self-explanatory. You think there's no training involved. <laughs> right. you, you know, But if it's not, if it's not completely apparent to them that like, wow, I've been looking for this. I've been searching for this. This feature is what I wanted and I don't see anything else with it. It actually is not going to do really well because product sales, especially on a retail shelf, is completely self-service. So if it doesn't sell... Mm-hmm. From my looking at the box in seven seconds or less, it's not going to sell. It's even less right. time when I'm scrolling through my feed on Amazon, right? Yep. So, so yeah. So you've got to get the, the uniqueness out quickly. So the best way to do that is to make sure that community, who you know is already passionate about it, you know, they're into health, they're into wellness, but do they get what you're trying to do?
1: Right. So, so that's so my favorite ta- way. So you're talking, so I just want to kind of recap in case, um, some people are just sort of new to this. So, obviously, reaching out to communities on Facebook and connecting is pretty straightforward. Groups are, um, you know, d- different ways to find those people. But then, when you're talking about selling a similar product, you're talking about, well, obviously, through Amazon or eBay. Well, I'm not sure about eBay, but Amazon, you can't collect their addresses. Um, to to email to them. But if you have your own website, right, you can and you're collecting email addresses either through a pop up or just people purchasing, then you could start some kind of automation series and email campaigns where you're asking questions, maybe you're taking polls from those people as well as on Facebook. Yep, absolutely. And so, okay. you
0: know, there's a whole bunch of different ways. I, I chat that Messenger marketing is doing really well with product launching right now. It's a great way to do it, especially if you're dialed into a very specific community, like I mentioned, you know, small dogs. Um, small mm-hmm. dog owners are easy to access. Once you get into them and connect with them on Messenger, you have their email. But you also uh-huh. have a, a faster path because messenger um, uh, messages are opened 99% of the time where email right. is just not, right? So yeah. you have an even better connection to them. And it's a great way for you to, hey, I, you know, I have this new idea. I'm thinking about launching this. Would you like to participate in a survey? Would you, you know, what do you think of this? What would you pay for this? You can survey them. They're actually really eager to respond to you because they're always looking for new, great, fun products. And by the response, you can reward them with a coupon. You can, you know, when it comes out. So you can do a lot of things and and establish a rapport with that community and get their feedback at the same time.
1: Mm. Which chat bot do you like? What's your favorite one? So I'm not Manitou a chatbot expert, but I, yeah,
0: Manitat is the one that I think most of the people that I've worked with have used successfully. It seems to okay. be the most robust, but really yeah. it's mostly about how you handle it. Remember, this is a conversation. This is not pushy mm, and right. who wants to receive a message more than once a week. So we don't want to also spam people through messenger. So, you know, right. thinking about how you use it is more important than what tool you use. Okay. Got it
1: and what about um like doing office parties or house parties you know like a tupperware style party or <laughs> ways that you could involve real people in real time
0: so as long as you're you know it's not your friends and family so i am i'm so against that because i've seen it go wrong so so many times so if you're designing a product for preschool children or infants or um, toddlers anything like that then go to mops groups mothers of preschoolers right and buy them buy them coffee because they all need coffee let me tell you and yeah because we're all sleep deprived right and uh, buy us coffee buy our kids healthy treats though we don't want them sugared up and uh and 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 have that kind of presentation and ask some questions and get feedback from them. That's great, but make sure it's a really dialed in community. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, church groups are great, because you might have the perfect demographic if you're selling um, stuff to women over 40. Um, You know, there's a lot of those things going on in in your communities, but you just got to make sure the demographic that you believe is going to buy your product is going to be there. And at Mm. the end of the day, what you really want to do is see if they will buy something, not see if they like it. And that's why it's little bit focus groupish, which I'm not a fan of, but I am a fan of it when you're still in the development process because you have an Mm -hmm. ability to affect, understand they they don't get it. Let me fix that. And in the real problem is most inventors don't listen. So (laughs) they don't listen to the critical feedback. they like, they don't get it. There's something wrong with these people. And the reality is, is that when, if they don't get it, that's valid. It means that we're not communicating something visually in our product. We're not getting it across. It maybe needs a redesign, or maybe it's just not as valuable as we think it is. And this is time to dial in and find out more information. And so when we do that, though, we come out with a much better product at the end of the day that is going to sell well. Yeah.
1: So let's talk about dealing with criticism, so, because that's, <laughs> yeah. that's a really, I mean, it's a really valid point, you know, yeah. um, and I, I was once taught in this, after I closed my handbag company and I didn't know what I was going to do with the rest of my life, um, I took a Ladies Who Launch class when they opened in L.A. back in the end of 2005, and one of the most valuable things I learned in that class was dealing with criticism. I, th- I thought I did a pretty good job when I had my handbag company. I mean, to be honest, I'm not saying this to brag. I didn't get a lot of criticism because it was a successful brand. But I was launching my, my patented closet organizer, and nobody knew what it was, right? And I did deal with a lot of criticism about that. But what, they said, what I was taught there was just to say, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and they and what that did for me or what they were trying to get across to us was just accept it right say thank you to the people who give it to you because that's really all they want to want is to be heard right. and and then they actually might be giving you something that's valuable and that you know you really need to um you know, to listen to it and take it into consideration because it could save your brand or help you develop it or change something, right? Right,
0: right, absolutely. And, you know, but they all like, most people like to cling to the idea of like, you know, um, you know, Spanx, right? She, here she goes around, Sarah Blakely goes around to every, to, I don't even, I think it was like a hundred banks, I think like a crazy number. And they all reject her saying nobody mm-hmm. will buy this. Right, and she per- per- persevered and, and made it anyway.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: the thing is, is that it doesn't. It, it, that's where it, it, if it's the right audience and they're criticizing you, you must listen. And yeah. if it's not the right audience, then yeah, you can go ahead. You should definitely be thank- thankful because you know you asked for an opinion or they gave it. You got to listen and you got to move on. Yeah. I'm lucky because I went to art school, and in art school, every project is critiqued. So they are, yeah. are training us to take criticism from day one. So if you can't take criticism, then you will never develop as an artist or a designer. And so I, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so and also to me, I'm very prolific, obviously, like, look how many designs we've created, right? I know there's going to be another idea tomorrow. So I treat them a little more cavalier than most people who's <laughs> like, I have this idea and it's my baby. I'm like, nope, I'm going to be right. pregnant again tomorrow. You know, there'll yeah. be another idea, right? And so, you know, that, That's that's how we treat it. So it's not so precious to us. And and I think that that when you can give that insulation for yourself, you're helping that out. And if you can't, if you're really too sensitive and this just is not your thing and you take it to heart and you take it personally and it puts you into tears, get yourself a market research expert who can help you through that. Um, right. I'm lucky. My sister-in-law is one and she, she's amazing. She's done work for target and, and Starbucks and places like that. So even though I can take the criticism, I'm like, why should I? She's a professional. Let me have yes. her ask all the questions. Let and and I'll, just, yeah. I'll look at the results in a much more analytical way rather than right. hearing that personal comment directly at me. And yes. so, you know, that really helps out as well. So kind of creating a barrier for yourself can be the best thing you can do because it's, it is hard for people. I, I, get that Uh because they've worked so hard and they've invested so much but you want your investment to succeed and in that success requires feedback and you have to listen to that feedback so this is how i create my products are more successful and why i how i can always come up with something new is i i dive deep into negative comments Uh because i believe in the (laughs) negative it, you know, right. we were we were actually talking about um, uh, David Corbin before we got on this call, and David Corbin has written a book called Illumination. And in Illumination, that's what he's talking about. You're supposed to illuminate the negative because it is in understanding the negative where you can see the opportunity. Right. And so and so most people see the negative and they just take it as like, oh, everybody hates me, hates my product, like, and they feel bad about it. But if you look at that, you go wow, there's great opportunity here. And so few people can do that. Look at it from the opportunity perspective that they don't create the next product that they should. They don't Mm -hmm. make the improvements that they should. And that's why someone new swoops in.
1: Right. And they do the next iteration instead of you.
0: (laughs) That's right. But yeah. So Sarah, I want to go back to your question that you asked me, though, about some other low cost ways. The yeah. other way that I absolutely love is and and this is where I got in, into 3D printing about well, I mean, we've been 3D printing for over a decade with prototyping and other things. But about five years ago, we got much more serious into sort of the desktop 3D printing market. And we started the podcast WTFFF um, because it was really hard, actually. It's, it's not the same design. Like if you think you're going to design for 3D printing and then you're going to be able to go straight into making your product and tooling for it, you can't do it. It doesn't work like that. It's a different process one's additive and one's subtractive. And Mm -hmm. so, but so we learned this, that like everything we knew about design just wasn't quite working out as well in 3d printing. And so we had nothing Instagrammable. So we started this podcast so that people wouldn't give up. And um, because there's something really beneficial here. And so we actually do this very frequently with our clients that are doing things that are a little more stylistic, um, where it's a, it's, color and design, maybe it's a character or things like that, we want to make sure that we don't spend a ton of money tooling for too many things. And so can we dial it in and maybe make five designs and go out there and sell them, actually sell them? Because 3D printed products are just as sound as an injection molded product. If you, so if you do them right. <laughs> it is unbelievable. And, you know, sometimes the finish isn't quite the same and you have to take a uh-huh. look at that. And, but for the most part, we've been able to do it with metal. We've been able to do it with um, something that looks similar to ceramic, and we've been able to do it with most plastics and, and be able mm-hmm. to put a finishing paint or finishing treatment on it. And then be able to go out there and sell it and, and have a mar- an actual physical test of which one of these three, five designs should we be tooling for, which one is going to be that 80%. So, you know, you have an 80-20 rule when you come out with a product line of colors or different styles, 20% right. of them will sell. So can we just tool for the 20% and can we figure out what that is and really test that? Because if I put out a survey or like do, you know, I think it's pretty popular in the Amazon seller and and e-seller community to use PickFu, which is just like a bunch of pictures of your product, which one do you like and which color. And they end up so not statistically significant because this isn't a buying market that is going to be picking. It's someone who decided to opt into an app so they get coupons and benefits. And so they're not... Yeah. you know they're not your customer. And so then they pick and and you end up with like oh 50% like this. And I was like that's not significant enough to make a decision. Let's see yeah. who plunks out money for it and then we can make a choice. But uh-huh. you know, if you look at your initial product launch, if you look at this market test as a net zero proposition. If I'm going to I don't care if my 3D print product costs almost as much as I'm going uh, to eventually sell it for. So, of course, covering my, my, my costs of Amazon or my cost of marketing or whatever that is. But at the end of the day, if I make zero dollars, but I learn that I shouldn't tool for this, I have m- saved myself a fortune.
1: I I didn't spend money on
0: inventory. I didn't spend money on tooling. I didn't do that. I didn't make a huge error. I saved myself time and money. So if I net zero on it, and that's my ultimate goal for every client that we put through this type of program is to make sure that that, that's where they end up, that they have learned exactly what they needed to know and they're very confident moving into the next stage of what they do. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, So so with... um, what about, like, things that are made out of fabric, like clothing or jewelry? So, or so you know, this is
0: the, the thing, we get kind of caught up. It's, it's a very common, like, human trait to someone say, well, if you buy it in volume or I'm going to make you buy 10,000 pieces um, and, you know, and you get this, uh, you know, it's going to be this cheap cost. And you're like, oh, that, that fits the margins that I want and it does everything I want it to do and I'm going to make a fortune on it. But it's a mistake at the end of the day you you should have just paid four times the cost of the product so Uh this is where we're very willing to go in and negotiate with factories negotiate with whoever we need when it's with a fabric product it's honestly easy the most expense you can end up with is telling the factory i'll buy the fabric because they usually have a minimum run of that so you might buy the fabric but not make them all and um and it'll end up costing you less money so or you know thinking if you're printing something you might Pay for the printing plate, but not but not have to, and then pay higher per piece to buy a smaller run. Because exactly. They're trying to save you money by saying, "Oh yeah, well I've got to buy this much material. It makes this much. That's your minimum run." And you know that's great, but if you don't care about the cost at the end of the day, you care more about the market proof. You'll you can make some different choices.
1: What do you What do you think the average person usually spends on product development? like, you know, sort of for all the things that we've talked about.
0: So I think on the average, on
1: average.
0: Actual, yeah, I mean, it depends on the cost of the product, of course. I mean, furniture sure. is going to cost you a ton more. But well, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So Let's I mean, thinking small about things, <laughs> yeah, small products under $50 um, retail, like you think about it that way with no tech. I mean, you can have batteries or, you know, things like that, but no software integrations or anything like right. that, but under $50, you know, for the most part, I think the average that I see is around thirty to 50000 um, mm-hmm. in that. And, um, and that assumes that they didn't really hire a huge expensive design firm. They probably did most of the work themselves or with the factory. If they have hired a, an expensive design firm, they'll probably spent twice that. Right. And, and, you know, and, and that's including, you know, your first run of inventory, I would, I would say, for the most part, you you can get somewhere around that, um, double mm-hmm. the price, right? So $100,000 yeah. to buy you your first run, plus all that development cost. Right.
1: That's what I was but, kind of thinking, And, too. you
0: know, and a lot of them included in that budget, they are paying for their patents and they're doing all of that soon. Yeah. And, so you know, I like to say if I can get you and do it for under 30, then you've been and, and you've marketed and sold something, then I've been successful for you. That's right. my yes. only goal when I work with people. Because I, I want you to get marketing out of that, not just development. Mm-hmm.
1: Of course. So. Of now, course. it may only
0: be your, you know, your, your test run marketing. It's not like your firm marketing program and plan. You need more money for that. But, yeah. you know, but I want you to get out there and I want you to test the access to the market and get something selling. And then from there, hey, if we can generate $10,000 a month in, in, in sales from something, now you've got budget to continue to work on.
1: Mm-hmm. Totally. How long do you feel like it takes on average to, to do all these tests? test before you actually go ahead and make your first real thing, you know, like samples with the factory?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, if you just want to go in and private label and test the market, you can be up and running and doing that within three to four months. And, you know, so that's typical sort of private label process. It takes about three to four months to get something of quality onto Amazon and be, you know, selling a thousand pieces and testing it out. So mm-hmm. you can definitely do that part of it quickly. But in my experience, if you shortcut the development process and spend less than nine months developing a product, and it usually ends up taking you twelve because of ho- Chinese holidays and shipping and other yes. things like that. right, all oh, those it's things, gonna, yeah. yeah. But if you try to shortcut that less than nine, it will never work. It will never come out quite the way you expect it to. Um, it is. Uh, I, mean, I have some clients who are like I you know, I said to them, I think, you know, at minimum, the way that this product is going to be, and in my experience, we should be really happy with the sample after we go through four rounds, four rounds of sampling. And when you imagine what that takes, it takes a few weeks to make a sample. It takes you three weeks to get it like, and mm. turn it back around and criticize it and say, here's what I need to be fixed. So every time right. you do a sample, it's about six weeks. Right. And so if you go through three of those, you know, that's where you're hitting into those dates. And, and so we had one that was really straightforward and whatever, but they kept changing their design on it afterwards oh, and they gosh. wanted to add a pocket and do this and, you know, change that. So we're on our sixth sample now, right? And it's <laughs> the whole year. But I think right. we're finally done with it. But, you know, but that, that's what happens in the process is that they can get yeah. perfection about it. So I do of like course. to kind of, I of, I, I think three to four rounds of a sample is planning for that is good
1: you'll Mm -hmm. never get
0: your first sample perfect it never happens i've been doing this for 27 years it never
1: happens once (laughs) right i've never had a perfect sample come in either and some really scary (laughs) fabric
0: that i've designed over the years what there's always (laughs) some interpretation that you didn't expect you're like how did they how was i not clear about that and i mean we literally draw things up spell it out provide engineering drawings and it still Mm -hmm. goes wrong
1: so let me tell you something
0: so wrong. So now I can improve that, but most people won't pay for it. So most people don't, uh, won't go to the factory to work with them. And right. so when I'm working with my bigger clients, they have budgets for that. And I will, yeah. we can, we can I can be right there while they're doing the sample, reiterate it and reiterate it. And we can go through the three samples in the week that I'm there. So they'll make right. one before I get there. I'll go through it. We'll get it finessed and we'll get it done in time. And so right. that shortcuts you to about six, seven weeks of being right. able to do the sample the first time. And, right. um, Instead and of, so we'll could,
1: possibly lot. nine months. <laughs>
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. And so we do that for people who we do that. I do that for like big brands. Like we would do that with Martha Stewart because her mm-hmm. color matching matters, you know, seriously to her, right? Right. It's got to be the of exact course. right Robin's Egg blue, right? And right. so to be dyeing leather or to be doing all of those things, it will take round after round after round and we not get it right. So yeah. at the first one, I go there and I sit there until we get it right. And um, and that way the, the feedback's constant. They're they're more attentive. They don't lose track and go on to another client's project. It, it works better that way, and it and it saves a ton of
1: time and money. Yeah, I I would imagine it's uh, can be unbelievable.
0: <laughs> yeah, but most are like, oh, a trip to China, it's going to cost you about $5,000 by the time you're done with the, tr- you know, the travel right. and the time away and all that stuff, especially you know, when you pay for an expert's time. But the difference is, is you know, what you're talking four months, right? So right, it, exactly. You, you have to think about that money, uh, time saving. It, you know, it's worth spending money to save time, especially in the retail market, because time is everything. If you miss your window of opportunity, you
1: may not get it again. Exactly, or especially in fashion if you miss your season. Yes, you can't miss your season. <laughs> you can't miss your season, yeah. I mean, there's yeah. a ton of billion products that are seasonless, but in fashion, you, you've got to hit your season. Right, um, and
0: and I do this a lot. Like, I'll I'll talk to clients, and I'll be like, it's June, and we're not ready with the sample yet. Do you want me to make a trip for you? Because if I don't make it today, you will not get your orders before Christmas. It's not going to happen. So you right. won't have fourth quarter. You won't be able to order, because you probably have to order by July. So... Yeah. Um, that's like the outside window. I mean, that that's really outside. Most of my clients place their orders by the end of Chinese New Year, the prior year. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. you know, so you're, you're in February, you'll be placing orders for your quarter four.
1: Yes. Oh, totally. Well, yeah, I mean, when I was in manufacturing well, with my bags, I always had to order my leather from Italy way in advance because they closed for the whole month of August. So you have <laughs> to have all your... You know, even though I produced in Los Angeles and it was fast and easy, I still had to have all my leather shipped by July, which meant I right. had to either design it or order it in April or something. Right. Well, um, most people don't that.
0: realize it's really also financially hard because you're yeah it, it's you know, you're not coming off of your best season into spending money on materials. So this is uh-huh. where a lot of companies go wrong is, is in their material flow, cash flow, like the two things have yes. to go side by side. And so they don't understand the order flow process and, and they also don't understand the seasonality of the factories themselves.
1: Right. Yeah. It's So, I mean, that it, it can be a killer. I mean, can, a financial, like you have to really right? a budget. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So, um, just want to touch really quick, and then I'm going to let you go on um, – so once you've done all this test marketing, right, you've done um, the Facebook reach out, you've done some uh, self maybe selling a similar product – um and then maybe you've done some chat botting and um and some 3D printing and you've maybe shown your prod- shown this idea to strangers, right? And um and tried, you know, and asked them if they would buy it. Maybe you can sell the 3D printed item, maybe you can't, maybe it's just a show sample or something, depending on what it is, right? Um when I mean, so so at that point you would feel comfortable saying to someone if they got all these positive results, right? Then it would be like, "Hot dog, no, get to the factory," right? Um, yeah, I
0: mean, I'd be like, "Move along," because you, you know, you've got a, you've got probably a seasonality window. You may have a like other people are gonna start figuring this out, right? And you right, may not have your. Yeah, you might not have an open playing field, so you definitely want to get in there. And, um, yeah, so that's where you really move it along. And you should be moving it along all along the way, right? I mean, it's not like we go in, we start selling a product. It's not like we aren't working on the development at the same time. We're trying to do all those things simultaneously. What we're just not doing is spending money on tooling and inventory until we're confident. Right. So theoretically, you should all be ready. Right, you yes. know everything should be there. You should be ready to go. You should have your financing in order because you're going to need it. And right. um,
1: and you know, and, patent if applicant if applicable. Exactly, right? exactly.
0: Yeah. Well, now yeah. I highly recommend before you ever go to your factory to file your provisional
1: patent. So yes, exactly.
0: Yeah, you know, just to just to cover yourself, but you shouldn't have taken a whole year at this point, because at some point you aren't, you know, in the early stages of the development, even if it takes you a whole year, the first three months, you're not in a factory, you're not actually disclosing anything. So you wait until right. that last minute and then file it.
1: Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been so fun to chit chat about this. <laughs> um, My favorite and, subject. Uh, so. <laughs> yes, I know. I it's Well, developing products is so fun. Um, and interesting, and can be. Sometimes you're just. I'm sure there's times you're just so wowed by what people bring you. Like, how the heck did you think of that? And but then of course there's the duds that show up. Of course, I'm sure. And you're like, <laughs> oh, how do I tell you that nobody's gonna want this? Um, so, I
0: have to say that I rarely see the duds. Like they don't always. That you know, I don't know what it is, but I tend to see the ones that have bigger opportunity. But the issue I think for most people is that there's a way to succeed and they won't take that path Uh and they they're running in an outdated model of as you put it like early on when you were talking this patent first kind of situation when you're running these inventors groups and all of these things there's a reason they're all there and not successful and the ones that are successful leave the group and don't come back And it's because that model doesn't work. The market has changed. I mean, I've been doing this for 27 years. When I first did it, we didn't go to China, right? There wasn't, I mean, we didn't get on a plane. So the first time we ever went to China was 97. And that was really early. We had no Skype. We had nothing. We had nothing, right? you couldn't even fax back to each other like it was too costly you had a paper so you ticket. went and you were like yeah. i hope you're okay over there good luck and i'll see you in a right. week you know yeah. and so it's very different but you know that looking at how things have changed in digital marketing we have such greater opportunity to be successful faster so yeah. and to get that market proof and to do what you need and there are so many more low cost ways to launch than it used to be i mean before mm-hmm. if you had less if you didn't have at least 250,000 to $500,000, you couldn't launch. Now, I right. said, what did I say? 50000 right? That's right. incredible. Yeah, 30 that, to couldn't 50. Have, that couldn't have even happened 15 years ago.
1: No. No, I didn't even go to Asia until t- early, late 2001. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and still then I didn't even I just was like, don't assume my email is going to work because it barely worked when I went to India in 1999. It was like twice a week I could email my office and they're like, are you alive? Right. But it's
0: even only in the last five years that even even
1: the Asian
0: companies and around the world that they've gotten to the idea of creating lower runs initially. So lowering their minimum is a new thing as well that was incredibly hard to negotiate before. Yes. So yes. you know, it it's all in your favor to be able to launch low cost.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, and then there's the few and far between that still manufacture here in the States.
0: <laughs> well and, and it's perfectly fine. Like you just have to yeah. make
1: sure it's right. Right. That it's working. The numbers work. Yeah. For whatever it is. Well, Tracy, thank you so much. This was so You're fun. Welcome. And um, we will uh, catch up on the next on the next topic sometime soon. And all of you, thanks so much for listening. And I'll catch you on the next one.
0: Thanks for tuning in to a Street Smart MBA with Sarah Shaw. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes to get the latest episodes anytime, anywhere. And we'll see you on the next one.